0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Borellis. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone.
1: This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
2: Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals. And
0: I'm your producer, Jillian Hockman.
2: And I'm losing my voice. It's
0: okay. You sound great. You sound great.
2: Well, I don't really need it. And it's only, you know, a podcast thing that I'm doing here.
0: You can be the first silent podcast host.
2: All right. Here we go. Here's my silent podcasting. All the awards. Yes. I love it. We invented something new. Okay. So this episode is with Tom Kitt. Uh, Jillian, uh, what did you think about this one?
0: I really, really love Tom's authenticity. Uh, he is a, a great composer and a great um, all-around music guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but i I love Next to Normal. I love so many of his shows, and I love how real they always feel. Uh, they are uh, just they come from the human experience, and he is just such a great writer. And and you get all the feels when you listen to his music.
2: <laughs> yeah, he he, he was literally just a kid. Um, well kid to me, uh, he was in his mid twenties when he wrote next to normal. Um, and, and that is similar to superhero, which just opened at second stage, but we actually get into this in the podcast and he's now 45, uh, having written superhero. He looks at things from the other side of Of parenthood was that apparent um, to you? I guess listening to Next to Normal and then listening to the interview, like what did what did you feel about that?
0: Yeah, but he also you can tell where he's he's coming from, but you also can see that he understands the the various perspectives and the way that different people feel, and he can empathize and put himself in situations that make it so anyone can love his art, even if you are not the the 45-year-old man or the mm-hmm. 25-year-old kid who wrote the show, it, it doesn't matter.
2: Right. It's, it was actually surprising to me as a true reflection here um, that he has—he doesn't have a set way of approaching a project. Uh, he said that sometimes he writes the music first, sometimes he writes the lyrics first, sometimes he's handed something where stuff is partially written and he just, he just goes with it. Sometimes he writes the music and then has to fit the script into that.
0: However inspiration strikes, just, I, just get it out.
2: I guess it works. I mean, the dude's got a Pulitzer for this stuff. So, and, a you know, tonies. and a couple Tonys. And a couple Tonys and lots of... A very uh, nice shelf. <laughs> very nice shelf of things in his house, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so everybody, please enjoy this episode here with the one and only Tom Kitt.
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here you go. One, two,
0: three.
2: So this bio here, actually, I have to admit, was mostly stolen from mtishows.com because it was the best write-up that I could find. And uh, for for length, Uh I I shortened it. And uh, this is... Even as long as it still is, it's still the highlights. So <laughs> I cannot wait to get into this stuff with you. But uh he has received the 2010 Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize for the for drama, as well as two Tony Awards for Best Score and Best Orchestration for Next to Normal. He's also the composer of If Then, which also got a Tony nomination and Outer Critics nomination: High Fidelity, bring it on, and uh the Bring It On the Musical with Lynn Manuel, co-composer with Lynn Manuel Miranda. Among many others, uh, he's a composer, arranger, orchestrator, whose credits include Spongebob Squarepants the Musical, which was also a Tony nomination for him, an Outer Critics nomination and Drama Desk nomination, Head Over Heels, Jagged Little Pill, Grease Live, American Idiot, and then his work with Green Day also includes additional arrangements for their Grammy award-winning album 21st Century Breakdown. He's received an Emmy Award as a co-writer, again with Lynn manuel Miranda for the 2013 Tony Award opening number, Bigger. He has TV songwriting credits including Royal Pains, Penny Dreadful, and Sesame Street, one of my kid's personal favorites, of <laughs> course. Um, as a musical director, conductor, arranger, and orchestrator, credits include Pitch Perfect films, two cellos featuring Lang Lang, uh, the Kennedy Center Honors, 13, so much more. And upcoming projects include musical adaptations of the film's almost famous Magic Mike and The Visitor, and his work is currently, well, Currently, at the time this will air, but at the time of recording, about to open tomorrow at second stage, a musical called Superhero, Tom Kit, Oh my gosh, thank <laughs> you for being here with me, and thank you for sitting through that, that <laughs> wonderful monologue.
1: Thank you for reading that <laughs> and for having me today.
2: So on this podcast, we like to start uh, at the very beginning of of your life and your interest in everything. Um, so where did you grow up? I
1: grew up on Long Island in Port Washington. I lived there until I was 13. And then my parents moved us to uh, the Banksville area of Westchester, which is right between Bedford and Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, I went to the school in Armonk. So the the Armonk, New York area uh, is where I spent high school. And uh, I started playing the piano when I was four years old. My brother and sister were both... We're both playing, and I just started to sit down and play things that I was hearing in the house. And what I found out later is that I have perfect pitch, which basically means that I can hear a note and just tell you immediately what it is, and it helps me figure things out pretty quickly on the piano by ear. Um, So uh, I was four years old. My mother took me to the teacher that was instructing my brother and sister, and she said, I think think he's too young. I don't normally work with, with kids that age but I sat down and played for her and, uh, and she took me on as a student and I started training classically. Uh, I was pretty much strictly classical until about 12, 13. I was writing, um, music, writing classical pieces. And then I went to a camp called Camp Alton, which sadly is no longer around, but, um, It was uh, on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. A number of camps are up there. And it was run by a man named Peter Grelnick, who is a um, very famous and um, well-renowned journalist, rock journalist, Mm -hmm. and wrote books on Elvis Presley and Sam Cooke and soul music. And uh, he had, uh, it it was a a sports camp. You would go up there and and compete two teams over the course of the entire summer, but... uh, there was a wonderful musical aspect, and there was a band that was based on the Blues Brothers called the Almond Brothers, and there were musicians who, during the year, played around and and, and were quite uh, talented. So they pulled me in as a 13-year-old kid who had never soloed before, and suddenly I was playing Sam and Dave and Ray Charles and <laughs> um, having the time of my life. And then another camper introduced me to Billy Joel, and I started listening to the, the early Billy Joel albums, uh, Piano Man, Turnstile, Street Life Serenade. So I uh, I suddenly became obsessed with Billy Joel and subsequently Elton John and Simon and Garfunkel and James Taylor. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a singer songwriter. So, uh, through my years in high school, I was writing songs now and writing lyrics for the first time. And, uh, and then, uh, I went to Columbia, which is where I, I say, I met, uh, my, uh, my two wives or my two spouses, uh, Rita Pinto, who uh, I'm still married to, um, happily uh and uh, we just celebrated or we're going to celebrate nineteen years this this year, which is which is wonderful. We have three children, and Rita introduced me to uh Brian Yorkie, and uh, that changed my life because that's where I realized I wanted to write musicals and uh, And Brian and I forged a um, a collaboration and a friendship, and all of that led to next to Normal
2: Wow. That's that sort was, of a brief history, so sure, I could fill in more history. blanks. <laughs> so my math is right. You got married at 26?
1: Yes. Yeah, all right. 26. And then- You're yes, 2000, yes. so it's easy for me to- uh,
2: Yes, <laughs> to, yes. Calculate. Because <laughs> uh, tomorrow tomorrow is your birthday. Yeah, tomorrow so happy, is my 45th happy, birthday. Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and, and what a special birthday celebration that Superhero is opening.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah tell me about that. What is,
2: what is Superhero?
1: So Superhero is a musical that um, uh, I, I came up with this idea, I think around 2009 or 2010. I've, I've always been obsessed with comics and superhero stories and origin stories. Um, from At the age of four, I, I remember my parents taking me to the original Superman film. And uh, I'll never forget the opening credits, the, the music, the names flying through space. I always thought, God, it would, you'd be the coolest person if your name was flying through space to the music of John Williams. But um, I just remember the story and how gradual the telling of it was. There, it, Superman doesn't even come into the film until an hour in. There's so much beautiful story of of, of Clark Kent and how he's adopted by a, by two by a couple who could never have kids. The sad destruction of his of his planet and his parents sending him to safety. Um, it just had a, a hope and, and a beauty and a stillness that um, I just thought, I, I, I think there's a musical there in, in, in the superhero genre, but maybe it, it, it goes against a little bit what we expect. There's not a, there's not a villain. There's not um, you know, big action. It, it really speaks to um, what, what I think superheroes represent in the world right now, which is um, the need to believe in something, that, that there are forces out there that are looking out for us. For me, as the father of three, I I often shudder at the world and, and the things that I see and feel. It's 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 a hard world. It's a wonderful world, and you have to grab on to the the hope and the beauty. But um, we're we're shown images every day that that shake us. And and uh, I just felt like I wanted to put something out there for my kids that would speak to them, speak to um, the fact that I know as a parent I can't protect them from everything, but I'm going to do my best to be there for them always. And also that. I trust that they're they're, they're going to go out into the world and and find their own way. And certainly as you as you become a parent your your mortality becomes um pretty clear. You know, you start to sense things in, in in new ways as as a parent and I think all of those ideas were at the center of this. So I just was walking around with this with this small story of a family and 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 um a mysterious person who moves into their building and um perhaps or perhaps not as is a, a superhero and I pitched that idea to, to John Logan. Uh, John, the, the brilliant writer of the play Red and and, and numerous um, wonderful screenplays. Um, John was looking to write a musical, and I was brought into his office to have a general meeting, and I just pitched him this idea. And thankfully, he uh, he jokes that uh, he did the thing your agents tell you never to do, which is he said yes.
2: <laughs> <at the meeting. laughs> right away, yeah.
1: And we started working on it and, and be, uh, beating the story out. And, and then John, uh, which is a great gift for, for for me, especially, or I should say, was a, gr- a great gift for me, especially since I was um, writing. I wanted to take on the lyrics for the first time. John went and, and wrote a draft of the book and had song ideas, and and in the within those song ideas, he had um, dialogue, he had he had conversations, monologues. There was so much for me to draw from, and and the writing of this show just just was always so easy, and nothing is easy, but I was just always so inspired. About the subject matter and, and what John was, was creating. and uh, it's really been a privilege and a pleasure from day one.
2: How, how does the process work for those of us who don't know, in, including myself for, for a lot of this, um, I come from the acting side of this, mm-hmm. where uh, you know you get a casting call or, or you know later on in the business, like your agent or your manager or whatever, they send you out and you, you go there and you audition and like the song's already there and the script is right. mostly there and everything. But when you're starting from nothing, you you know you go into a room, and you pitch this. All right, so so then what? Okay, he said yes, you want to work on it. How long did it take before you started composing? It took a
1: few years. Um, and and uh, John lives on the West Coast, so there was a period after we had said we were going to do this that um, we got caught up in other things, um, but we reconnected. And I just remember John and I sitting together for a week and really talking through the story, talking through the characters. I can't say enough about what, the book writer brings to the process it's really in in my opinion the the unsung hero not in terms of us in the community we know how important it is but um it it it's it's just the, the it's the lifeblood of the musical the musical mm-hmm. does not work without the book um without without a sound book and um so so we knew that we didn't want to really start writing anything until we had the story and of course it was going to change and it did we 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 threw out characters created new ones but the trio the main trio at the center of the story uh, existed from day 1 and john took that and ran with it and um as i said he he created a, a whole book for me to work from and uh I, I think musicals happen in all different ways next to normal we we just started writing songs we had a basic story um, and, and then we wrote a bunch of songs and had to go back and outline and figure out how we were going to put them into the story um, and Brian and I would always laugh about that and say well this is the way not to do it <laughs> but, but it worked out uh, it, but took a number of years for us to cobble that together uh, and in this case just for me having having been through the process um, it just was was very uh, organic and methodical and um, as I said I had so much to work with when I, when I started
2: writing the first song that's interesting I I was actually going to bring that up a little bit later, but you brought up next to normal. Uh, you've had so much success. The show had so much success. and and I guess superhero when I was reading the synopsis of superhero, I couldn't help but think that that it harkened back a little bit to kind of the general like dysfunctional family sort of uh, you know, family personality issues that next to normal highlights. And is that was that on purpose or is, is that coming from a, a place inside you that, that you may not want to talk about? I think that's
1: something I'm drawn to as a writer. I think human connection, human themes, our frailty, um, our, our, our inability sometimes to um, to connect in the way that we need to, and then how satisfying and beautiful it is when we finally do. Those are things that I just love to write about. I love to write about the human experience. And uh, I, I definitely think superhero is a companion piece with Next to Normal Next to Normal was, was, was something I started writing when I was 24 years old. Wow. And um, I, I think that I was closer, obviously, to my younger years at that point. I was writing um, having just been um, a teenager and, and, and was drawing on a lot of that experience. I wasn't yet a, f- a, 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 a father. Um, I was getting married two years later. Superhero now is, is, is really about the father the parent side of, of, of it for me. Um, and, uh, it's still my, my desire to, to bring human themes to a show and, 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 uh, and put myself on stage in terms of the things I'm, I'm passionate about, the, thir- the things I'm thinking there's, there's so many personal aspects of my life in superhero. And I just feel like as a writer, that's been something I've always wanted to draw from the, the personal experience and, and, the, uh, with Next to Normal, we would get people to come up and ask if, if the show is autobiographical in any way because of, of, of how people were affected by it. And what's so gratifying is that I've gotten a lot of the same questions about superhero. Um, and it's the same answer. There are parts of it that are drawn from my, my life. So yes, it's, it's autobiographical in some sense, but, but the major thing at the center of it isn't. And I'm, I'm uh, gratified that the show is speaking in such a way that people have that question. Wow,
2: I I I can see that a lot, um, and I I wonder I wonder too because I speak to a lot of writers. I wonder where some of this comes from, and I think a lot of it is if you're a good writer, you have to be a very observational person, and then it's just a little bit or maybe a lot bit of imagination to take what could be like this this small amount of a of an idea of a story that you observe to somebody else or that even may have happened to you and and make it into this big thing. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's really it's impressive to me how you can do that sort of thing. And then even more impressive, though, that you said Next to Normal was written with the songs first, because yes. then you got to go back, yes, yes, and write the script. Would you do that again?
0: I'm it open to seems, anything. Anything seems that gets really hard.
1: Anything that gets gets you rolling. Uh, Brian and I just love to write songs together. And that the other thing about Next to Normal was that I don't think either of us were convinced in any way that that was going to be our show. It was it was the first show we were working on. It actually came out of a ten minute musical uh, assignment at the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, and I think we just we both thought it was going to be one and done. We would do this, and but we started working on something else. And then Brian or I would say, "Hey, let's write another song for Feeling Electric, which is what it was called at that time. Let's just write another Feeling Electric song." And we just kept writing them, and finally we 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 looked at each other and said, "Look, if we want to write these many songs for it, we should probably see if we can actually make a musical out of it." So I think that. That, that that sort of first album quality to, um, to next to normal. It, it it was going to be unwieldy. It was going to be kind of all over the place. We were figuring it out. We were young. We were trying to support ourselves, which I still try to do as a writer. <laughs> um, but but uh, we 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 just didn't know the way it was going to go. And looking back, there are so many angels who came to our aid to to help us get through that and to believe in us. The Larson Foundation who gave us a grant. To do a workshop at a point when I thought the show might might have been over, um, of course, second stage, David Stone, um, you know, on and on. They're just people who always believed in that show, and um, so so so. I, I think I think to say, well, it, it should have been this methodical process. It's just where we were in our lives and 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 how we came to next normal. It was just never going to be that way.
2: Huh the 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 show um you mentioned that uh, you got a grant i was i was going to ask next um when when you're creating a musical based on music first uh, is that the is that harder or was it harder in your experience to get financing to get a production team behind you or do you like you go to the with the script and they say i'm going to give you money for that script versus i'll give you money for that, those songs
1: you mean something like next to normal yeah yeah um I think the thing that that we did, and and I'm sure other other young writers do, is is just try to get some buzz out there, get get your songs uh, performed, uh, get people to talk about it. Kurt Deutsch was someone uh, who who was instrumental. He um, he uh, committed to a concert uh, reading through his label Shikaboom, um, and this was in 2002, and 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 helped us get Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts to perform um, and Greg Greg Naughton um, to perform a, a concert version. And there were a lot of people there that night. And even though the show wasn't ready by any stretch, people remembered it. People were talking about it. And uh, so, so when the Larson grant came and we did a workshop at the Village Theater um, and we had applied, I believe, to the O'Neill um, people were just just aware of the show, and even though we didn't get into the O'Neill at that at that point, um, people were were talking about it and recommending it, and somehow it found its way to Nymph. And uh, suddenly, we were at the New York Musical Theater Festival, and that was a huge um, a huge step for us. Uh, we had Anthony Rapp and Amy Spanger in the show, and Joe Cassidy. And um, the show was three hours, although David Stone likes to say it was six. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you could tell there was something happening with it. People were having. An emotional response to it, um, so that was really the point where uh, finally people were coming forward and saying we, we we see a production in this show's future. But um, but it, we we just did everything we could to keep the ball in the air, and um, you do that on your own, but also you need people that say I believe in this piece. I'm going to give you this opportunity, and I know it's going to pay off sometime down the road.
2: Well, obviously, uh, you did. You get the the Pulitzer, Pulitzer for drama <laughs> for that. Did you see that coming? No,
1: no. You can't see that coming. How can anyone see that coming? It oh, was, gosh. Uh, it was unbelievable, and um, I, I still can't believe it. I still, it's um, it's just an extraordinary um, feeling to 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 have that moment. And um,
2: do you remember I, where you were when you first were told?
1: Yes, I do remember uh, because. Um, the way it works, or the way it worked for for, for us is um, we were told the, I think, either Friday or Saturday before it was announced, um, that we were in consideration, and that we just needed to let our, our press people know where we were going to be on Monday at 3, which is they announce it. Mm-hmm. Goes, I think it goes online, and it's instantaneous. So I was in the middle of tech for American Idiot. This was April of 2010. So uh, I was sitting with with Tom Hulse in um, in the theater, and uh, we were just talking. I said, "Yeah, you know," I'm, 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 I told him the story, and and so maybe at three p.m. I'll get a phone call. We'll see. And at three p.m. I got a phone call from David Stone, and I just I just started um, shouting expletives up and down the aisle. I just couldn't couldn't believe it, and it was a wonderful place to get that news because I was around the, my theater family right. and uh, Michael Mayer announced it from the uh, microphone on stage and, and actually they were filming uh, a documentary that eventually became Broadway idiot. And so there's footage, I guess of, of, of me doing this and and yelling and the (laughs) cast coming up and everyone hugging me. And it was beautiful. And then, and then Brian and I came to, um, um, Michael Hartman's office and we just were, we, we didn't know where we were. And, uh, it was, it was quite a, quite an honor. It still is. And, um, I just, yeah, I still can't believe it.
2: That's incredible. I, did it did it change your your uh, the career trajectory at that point, or like because next to normal had already, I think, probably catapulted you to a new level. But did that affect anything in in a, in a different way?
1: It definitely does because it um, it it is now the thing that defines defines me and you. Even when you read the 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 bio, that's the first thing, and it's yep. and and I'm I'm usually um, referred to as a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And that's um, that gives you goosebumps. And I, I, I've had an interesting road. My, my first show on Broadway ran for 10 days. So I've, I've really experienced the highs and the lows. I had a an 18-month-old child at that point. I had just quit jobs that I was doing to support myself. I had to go back to those jobs with the uncertainty of of whether anything was going to work out for me and the way that I was, I was hoping I'd be able to, able to have a career in this. I had the show feeling electric, mm-hmm. um, that was in development, but, um, who knew how that was going to go. And, um, and then suddenly that show in the middle of a, of a financial crisis, uh, you open the small musical on Broadway that finds its way. Who would have, who would have saw that coming? Uh, and everything that came after it just, just was unbelievable to me. And, and, um, just beyond expectations. So, so yes, it definitely defines you in terms of an of an award and um, and putting you on a certain level. But it also was was what made me feel like okay, I'm I'm I think I'm going to be able to have a career. I think I'm going to be able to to work in this art form and um, and I can hopefully push some things that are passionate to me. That because next to normal is there are a lot of people that hearing that subject matter would probably say you can't do a musical about that. There were plenty of people who did say that. Um, but now, if you open up a conversation with something that might seem a little unorthodox, they'll, they might say now, okay, tell me more. Come I mean, from away.
2: Come from away, perfect example, right? Yeah. Um, a musical about 9-11, I wouldn't have guessed that would have been one of my favorite musicals of all time, right?
1: We were, we were instructed at, at, at BMI. We were always uh, People always mentioned uh, breaking the mold, breaking new ground, trying to find a way to move the needle forward. And we, we looked at the musicals that did that. And, of course, you can never know as a writer if you're ever going to be able to achieve that, and I would never say it. Um, I'm too respectful of of this art form to ever assume anything um, about what I bring to it. But um, I do feel like Next to Normal came out of the challenge that was laid to us to find shows that were unexpected and and created an exhilarating experience in the theater that said to people, oh, wow, you can do that. Because that's those kinds of shows for me, Company, Into the Woods, Cabaret, those are the things that made me want to be a writer. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, where, where I guess, did you, let's back that up, back up that conversation, I guess, a little bit. To the very beginning, uh, you were saying at a young age, like you did piano, you did classical, but um, I don't think, I don't recall you saying why you got into theater and musical theater.
1: Well, when I was a kid, uh, my grandparents would take me to the matinees on Broadway. So we saw Peter Pan and, um, and I saw cats and I saw a chorus line. Um And um it was something that I just associated with, with family gatherings. And, and um, because I was so into the classical and then into the singer songwriter, um, I wasn't seeing that trajectory for myself. And it was really when I got to Columbia and Rita introduced me to Brian and we wrote what's called the varsity show. It's a, it's a, Book musical written by students about Columbia life, and it's got a rich history. Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Janine Tesori, Terrence McNally—just some of the people who worked on the Varsity Show when they were at Columbia. That was the that was the thing where I where I got the bug because it was it was a process unlike anything I'd ever been through. Writing songs for other voices, multiple voices, writing comedy songs, um, telling a story through song, and watching an audience respond to it. Um, hoping they'll laugh, hoping they'll cry. I remember um, when I was a senior, Brian and I wrote our second varsity show, and it was the, the the premise was about three students at Columbia, and God and the Devil have a bet about whether their four years at Columbia will make them sell their soul or not. <laughs> and it was it was personal story for me because I was considering some job opportunities that were going to take me um, outside of of my dreams. And you were you were at school for economics. I was an economics major. And, um, you know, these are, these are wonderful jobs and, um, but I n- knew they weren't the jobs for me. And I felt like I would, would be going after what I consider to be more stability and, 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 um, and money at that point, uh, at the expense of something that I had grown up dreaming I, I would do. So, um, I got a job offer, I turned it down and went into the uncertain world of, piano bar and teaching piano lessons and anything else I could do to, 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 to find my way, um, and, and writing. And that was a scary decision, but it was the, it was the decision that I had built up to. And so writing that show was very cathartic for me. And I remember, um, hearing a student beg someone for a ticket because it was sold out and they heard so much about it. And, they said to someone, um, "Come on, you've seen it. This is my one chance to see it." And I just thought, "Oh my God, I've I've made something that someone feels that passionate about. What a, what a great feeling that my personal story is matters." So that was really the 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 point where I thought, "This is what I want to do. I want to I want to tell these stories and 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 write songs."
2: That's interesting that that you said that the 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 person who was begging again. I, I I suspect that the people who really want to hear the people that that. Are passionate about that they 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 relate to it. They have to because it's an emotional response to be that to want to get into something that much. Yes, and and I I do. do you find that in your career, or have you found that in in that? Um, I guess maybe stage door experiences or fan experiences where where you have people come up and like thank you for allowing them to express themselves through through your work because they're they're too afraid, or they have some other reason why they can't talk about it in the same way?
1: It means the world to me. And I've been fortunate that um, I've had um, people come up to me and share their experiences and and their feelings about the work and what it's meant to them. I'll never forget when Brian and I were in previews for Next Normal on Broadway, there was a, a teenage boy who came up to us and said he had been diagnosed bipolar a few months earlier. And um, he wanted to to thank me because um he felt like he had something that he could point to and tell his um tell his friends about that's that's what he was going through and um and then recently on superhero because at the center of superhero is 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 loss the the, the loss of a of a father husband um and we've had people who have experienced that in their lives and and again someone came up and, and said that they felt like they had that, that the show gave them something to to talk about, and and it was cathartic, and and, and they could, um, uh, they could reference in talking to their son, and um, that's just that that's that's why I do it. Um, you can never predict what people are going to take away from your piece, and I've, as I said, I've been through I've been through every version of that, <laughs> um, and even on the things that that take something like Next to Normal, um, you know, there are people who will go to Next to Normal and not have that experience. Um, but, um, what, what, what you can feel collectively, what I felt at Next Normal and what I'm feeling at Superhero, um, is, is, is people breathing with the peace and, and experiencing something, um, that, that feels personal, uh, and cathartic. And, um, and when people come up to me and share that, that it's made them feel that way. Um, there was, there was a, a young girl last night who came up to me and, and said that, um, she related to Simon, the, the, Teenage boy at the center of superhero and that um, she was going to come back. I mean, someone who would who related to it so personally and didn't feel like it had it had pushed her away from the piece, but it pulled her to it. Um, I just
2: that's that's the greatest compliment I can receive. It sounds like like free therapy, not that they're, you know, they're paying for tickets, but in a lot of cases, I think, um, especially in this country, and I've said this before on this podcast too, that that people are afraid to talk about mental health. Mm and and i the way that you just described how people come up to you and share their stories it sounds to me like you know they can point to that and say oh that's how i'm feeling that's i don't know how to talk about it i've never been trained how to talk about my feelings properly but that's it yep and and it's it's a beautiful thing to me to hear about this and and it i understand you know from a from an outsider's perspective who someone who Can't play piano and always wish that he could. Um, Why just, but I love music. So I wish that I could just, you know, I feel music. I close my eyes and like, you know, even at raves, at clubs, like they turn up the bass Mm -hmm. because you want to feel that. You want to feel, you want to be connected. Music, it's vibration. It connects you with other people. And then if you can add the emotional story behind it, just beautiful.
1: I think art is the ultimate teacher. I think that there's nothing that gives us a sense of empathy and understanding and connection than an experience in art. And to get, in, to get inside someone's mind, um, if you're an actor, to play another role, to literally step inside someone's shoes. Um, it's why it's maddening to me anytime I hear of people trying to cut arts programs or arts education. Yeah. Uh, the statistics are just so um, telling of what it gives our kids. And to have my kids grow up in this world, um, to see this community up close, it's the greatest education I could I could give them. So um, I think anytime we can experience that, and if something does speak to you personally, you're, it's going to affect you. It's going to change your way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, just, that's just what's going to happen. You're going to ruminate on something. And if you see, if you're a young kid and you see a movie that depicts um, the dangers of bullying and shows someone who is um, being bullied rise above that, I would hope that you're going to come out of that saying, I'm going to speak up when I see that. I'm not going to be someone who does that. So, telling these stories—it's just so important, and especially, I think, for 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 the young people in the world right now.
2: Yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire? Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. It's just beautiful. I, as a father myself too, I, I think about my kids, and I always I want the best for them. I I hope that they will do well. Um, you know, I, like you said earlier, that you you just they're going to find their own way in the world, and you hope that you can teach them as best as you can because you can't always be there for them. Yep. And then even some of the stuff I teach them, I'm sure is probably not not best for them because we're all you know imperfect. But your your kids growing up in this in this field, in this area, in, in theater. I mean, this is New York City. This is the heart of it. This is like where some of the best of the best always come and always perform. And, you know, you, you are a case in point. You live here, right? One of the best. Do it's you?
1: amazing. And, and I mean, if I look I look at the shows that my kids have now grown up in, they were a little young for Next Normal and American Idiot, but Bring It On and If Then and Head Over Heels and Jag a Little Pill and Dave and, and now Superhero um, SpongeBob, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like every every one of these shows teaches them something, brings them to a world of imagination, of uh, of diversity and, and acceptance and love, and um, and that's just the shows that I've worked on, and then there are the, all the shows I've brought them to. So um, I can see it's 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 affected them in this beautiful way. My son is now playing Joseph. He's going to be. Um, <laughs> I was going
2: to ask if they're getting into it too. Freaky
1: Friday, another one that they just loved, and. Um, actually my my son played played a role in that musical last summer um and my daughter um did the lion king at school and and they just love it it's just it it really opens up their 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 hearts uh in this beautiful way and and i, I feel fortunate that I get to share it with them
2: so they sound they sound a little older you said in high school and stuff when when did they realize or have they realized yet that daddy's a big deal
1: well they're not there so my so the ages are um 13 9 and 6 oh um there um it's 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 funny because in the theater community I'll or or if I'm I'm around theater people sometimes they'll come up to me and and uh, someone will will bring a next to normal uh, playbill or CD for me to sign and uh, it's funny because my my kids, their eyes will, will 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 widen. Who was that? What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> um, and, you know, we've 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 Mia and and Rita have done um, have gone to great lengths to to normalize everything. You know, it's it, there there are certain things that are hard. It's very public. Um, I'm opening a show tomorrow. They're they're um, they're going to celebrate this with me. Um, but you know, there's for me, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of tension. And there's a lot that's unknown and. And I'm going to go through very human experience tomorrow, um, but it'll be nice to have them with me
2: to just, I'll just look at them and say that's that's what matters. It's interesting that, to think about, I guess, being the child of someone that that is idolized by others, because the people who who would idolize like a celebrity, um, they don't see the everyday side, they don't see the human side, the emotional side and then your kids of course like they're with you they're every day they're yeah. they see they see you in a completely different way that nobody else most likely ever will and so it makes total sense to me why they would not see daddy or mommy or whoever it is you know if like if you're Julia Roberts kids then at what point are you like wow she's one of the most respected well you know best actresses in the industry and she brings me to parties and i have access to all these celebrities that nobody else knows about. Like, it's so commonplace to them and probably like you bring your kids now. Right. And like how many people, how many people that nobody else will ever get to meet will be at your opening night tomorrow that you've worked with like Lin-Manuel, for example, I don't know if he'll be there tomorrow, but you've worked with him multiple times.
1: But what's great is that everyone in this community has treated my, my family with such love and, um, Lin-Manuel and, um, my oldest son, really all my kids. But, um, but Michael and Lynn forged a bond early on. Lynn was at his birthday parties. Um, I have a great picture of, when, of of Michael and Lynn when I when I finally took Michael to Hamilton, um, and Lynn was at his bar mitzvah. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and I, I think we all realize that um, family relationships, loyalty, um, kindness—these um, are the things that that matter and sustain us because the topsy-turvy world of what we do is just, it's, you just never know what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. But the things that you can rely on, people who love you, people who, who care about you, when, when high fidelity didn't take. And, um, I had so many people reach out to me and congratulate me and say that they were there for me. I'll never forget that. And that's what kept me going. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's really, it's, it's been normal for the kids because, um, Cameron Crowe, who I'm working with on Almost Famous, who's, who's become, such a, a an important and wonderful friend to me. Um, he's been hanging out with my kids, and 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 um, I, I, I sometimes look at that and I, I think, Do you know who this is? <laughs> Do you know this person is meant to the lives of your mother and me? I mean, we were we were we were first dating when Singles was out, and my wife had a poster in her dorm room. And I mean, this this is unbelievable to suddenly be side by side. But then then you're just people, and and you have things in common, and you have similar passions, and. I think the more normal it feels the better because I certainly wouldn't want to drop by and have people s- treating me in a, in a strange way. Mm-hmm. I just want to be Tom and and come by and 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 be down to earth with everybody.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it, the, gosh, the, that's the, that's incredible like to to think about um like you show up and you are the person that you are the person that other people have idolized but don't feel that way. It's this this weird dichotomy that I mean it's it's that, it's, that,
1: it's look, it's it's
2: I, I pinch myself
1: continuously. Right, Pulitzer Prize winning, even, two-time
2: award winner, but not just that, award, yeah. just the
1: people I'm around. We were doing a photo shoot for Jag a Little Pill um, maybe a month ago, and me and Alanis Morissette were taking a picture together. And I said, if you told my college self that I would be here <laughs> posing with you for pictures, I would, I would never believe it. And and here we are, and we're friends and and collaborators. Mm-hmm. Uh, Green Day, the the Go Go's. Um, all those artists, those brilliant artists on Spongebob. Oh, head over heels. I um, love that music. Thank Such you. Such good music. Thank you. Yeah. So, so it's just, I'm, I'm doing what I dreamed of doing, which is not just creating um, art, but working with the
2: people that I've grown up uh, idolizing and right. suddenly find myself in the room with. Wow, um, actually, I, I wanted to get to this at the very beginning, and we just glossed right over it. But I wanna, I wanna get you to explain for the listeners and for me the difference between music, orche- uh, music supervisor, orchestrator, arranger, and composer. Okay, so composer means composing the music, mm-hmm. or uh,
1: if you're composer lyricist, um, music and lyrics. Um,
2: so composer is without composer, just writing. Yeah.
1: Yep, you're a writer. Um, Orchestrator means that you get compositions handed to you in some form, and then it is your job to um, to write the orchestral parts, whatever that orchestra is going to be. So,
2: do you know, or do you get to pick what instruments? Are you in you,
1: it? you pick at the beginning of the process, and there are a lot of factors that determine that. Give me a triangle over here. Yeah. If it, well, if you're going to have a, a big percussion rig, you're going to have strings. You're going to have horns. Um, so, uh, so the orchestrator really—that's that's the job of the orchestrator. Um, the arranger, um, and an arranger can be any kind of arrangement. I mean, there are vocal arrangements where you're writing the vocal parts. Um, for 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 the arrangements, it's really if if you take a, a composition and then you continue to work on it in rehearsal to add sections to it, um, to to maybe add a different feel to it. Um, but basically to to continue to hone the composition in a way that um that you 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 um augment what was originally given to you to serve the show. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of arrangements I did on on SpongeBob, for example, um, if you look at the song No Control, which um which came from um David Bowie and Brian Eno, and um is 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 a brilliant, very moody, evocative song, but I was going to have to figure out vocal arrangements. And then it was going into dialogue section. So there was underscoring. And then this little section would suddenly have to drop down. So I would have to deviate from the original feel in the song. So so you're you're rearranging the song you're, uh, a little bit. Um and if you're the arranger orchestrator, which I've been, um, on things like Head Over Heels, American Idiot, you can hear. There are, there are, there are times where the form of the song is a little different mm-hmm. than the original. Um, the, the, the colors within the tone, um, you know, taking something like 21 guns, starting it just on strings and making it smaller, um, or what's her name even at the end. So those are all where I think of arrangement. And then when I get the arrangement to a place where it's ready to undergo orchestration, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Um, and then music supervisor, um, basically means that you oversee the entire musical element. So, um, a music director who you'll work with. Um, but get to sit back and hear the way the music is starting to sing and feel and mm-hmm. and and then give notes and work with that. work on the sound, work with work, work with sound design. Um, you know, really, and and then if there are if there are um, obligations like appearing on uh, on on programs, you know, talk shows or doing uh, performances, all of that, basically just making sure that you're always speaking for the music, um, whatever. Hmm. Whatever the demands are,
2: do you have a, a favorite? A favorite what? A, f- a favorite role?
1: <laughs> um, I, I think I like I like composer. I, I, yeah. I I've always wanted to be a writer, and and all of it is a form of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but to create a song from scratch
2: and um, and have it be your thing is is I think still the thing that and I watch it live travel for. through its many forms. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. SpongeBob really impressed me because it it did feel like a cohesive you know it was a co- cohesive music musical and all the all the songs were basically written by completely different people so when you were handed all this music did you work with the the artists to to make everything or were you just like we have a scene here here's an outline give me something and then I'll arrange it later
1: it was really very trusting process uh, the the authors would would work with um Kyle Jarrow and Tina Landau Um, Tina would, would, would get a demo in some form and then, um, have a back and forth with notes. And when it was ready to come to me, then I would do the arrangement, have it, have it ready for rehearsal. So it would just be a piano vocal. Mm -hmm. We usually had, um, just piano and drums in rehearsal. Um, and then we would rehearse the song and, and, um, and then I would orchestrate it for the production. Mm Um, I think this the the best compliment that that I've been given, which you just said, and and which thankfully, um, I think another people a number of people said was that the, the score did feel cohesive. And I think I think the the big reason is that those all of those writers wrote fantastic theater songs. They mm-hmm. spoke so honestly for the characters, and they nailed the, the the moment they were asked to write for, so nothing felt out of place. So the cohesiveness comes from the synergy that was created by all of those writers bringing their their skills and their passion to the project. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it it did seem like a completely like uniform linear thing to me and I I actually forgot. I, I knew about it going in but I forgot afterwards that it was all the The original authors, the writers were all completely different groups yeah. or or bands or whatnot. So yeah, you know, I guess that speaks to to a little bit of your or a lot bit of your talent to bring it all together. But, a,
1: yeah, I used to love family ties. I should oh, say I still love family ties. And there was an episode that i that I loved where um Michael J. Fox's character Alex Alex P. Keaton um ends up, I think, on two prom dates or two dates to a dance. And at the end of the episode or towards the end, he has to share a first. He's, he's managing to, ju- to 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 do it, and then and then there are uh, then they ask for like the dance. He has to do the the, the spotlight dance, and two um, two girls come onto the floor, and he just sort of you see the camera thing from his back, and then he just kind of faints. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this image in my head of, of of a similar thing where I would I would suddenly walk into the room of all the SpongeBob writers. There would just be like one day that they would all show up in a room, <laughs> and just like, faint and seeing all of them in front of me and have, having to answer. Um, but they, uh, I can't say enough about how supportive they were. And, um, you know, they showed up in Chicago at opening night. Mm-hmm. They were at the Tony Awards. Um, it was really, and again, people that I have, uh, admired and, and, and have been great
2: inspiration to me. So it was a real privilege to work on their material. That's what I would have loved to have met Bowie. He seemed, seems like he was a nice, nice guy. I, that would have
1: been, yeah, he, he's meant a lot to me. And, um, uh, I, I felt honored that we had a composition of his in our show. Yeah.
2: Yeah. so you've got um not an egot you're missing the Oscar but you've got what, an egged I'm the Grammy so I've got <laughs> yeah. a I've got
1: yeah. a I don't know what would
2: you call it are you credited you're credited with the Grammy because your work for um with uh uh Green Day right
1: no no just um I was just music supervisor
2: oh so um, okay
1: so but we yes okay. the album did yes. win uh, a Grammy which um, okay. which was a great thrill
2: well so you've received a bazillion awards anyway um Looking I guess looking ahead, is there is there something you want to do that you haven't gotten to do yet?
1: Um, I, I would love to, I think, um, work more in film. I just have have been, as I mentioned, you know, watching the the Superman mm-hmm. film. Um film's just meant always meant a great deal to me and and uh, to get to write a a movie musical, to um to show up and 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 see um on the big screen something you've created, I think that would be um that would be a great thrill
2: for me. Oh, we didn't even touch on that. Yeah, the you, you're writing for you've written for TV too. Like, how did that come into your career?
1: Really, through theater. Um, as 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 we've all seen, there've been uh, there, there's been so much uh, of of theater people going out into film and and um, television and, and 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 pop music and and then people from those worlds coming into theater. Um, so. Uh, really just I've I've gotten pulled into projects, John Logan, mm-hmm. um, who, uh, I'm again, I'm writing superhero with, um, pulled me into Penny dreadful, uh, to write a song. And, um, the writers of, of, of Royal pains were looking to make a musical episode. And I got, um, I, I went in and met with them and, and thankfully got hired and had a blast doing that. So, um, so it's really just been, uh, when an opportunity comes and, and, um, especially if people are looking to do a, a musical, they want people who have been through that process. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, it's been great when I've gotten that chance. And, um, the, the other thing that I'm really excited about, and it's still, it's still being, being worked on, but it looks like, um, after 23 years of, of, um, of trying to get a record deal, it looks like I'm actually going to be making a record. It's, oh, congrats! Uh, it's not, not official, but, um, but there is, there, there are talks and, that, that I'm going to get to do this, and that would be a great thrill for me because, as I said, it's something I've I've always dreamed of doing, and um, I just have this idea in my head that I'm 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 going to attempt to do this Born to Run kind of thing, where I just want to create a soundscape. I want I want to have orchestral stuff. I want to um, I want to do a, a a sort of throwback record, and and if I could, maybe even try to record it in the way that it was recorded, um, analog mm-hmm. in the in, in back in the in the '70s. Um, and 80s and probably the 90s
2: Would you do any any vocals? Or would it be all
1: orchestration? Yeah. The songs I've no songs I've written, songs, uh, maybe maybe songs from shows, maybe I get friends to come and, and, and do uh do duets or trios, whatever I can. But um it'd just be great to make make a make that kind of a statement because I've I've I used to take my vinyl and arrange them on my floor. I would take all the Billy Joel albums and arrange them chronologically and and I still to this day read the liner notes and um so I, I just that would be a that would be a, a tremendous moment for me to to actually make a record. Sounds like you need to partner up with Ben Folds. I would love to partner up with Ben Folds any any time. He's a um, I met him he um, back in two thousand four, I believe. I was part of this wonderful concert, um, which uh, was a, a concert version of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, mm-hmm. and uh, Ben Folds performed Gray Seal, which was. Which was thrilling to watch. So um, he's—I uh, was actually talking with Brian Yorkie. We were talking about cassette players, and I said, "I still remember when you gave me mixtapes of all the Ben Folds music to introduce me to." So um, yeah, I think he's a brilliant writer and mm-hmm. uh, I'm just a killer pianist. And so yeah, anytime I could be in the room with him, he, be he's
2: the—he's what is it—the artistic consultant for the Lincoln Center. Oh, really? Or uh, uh, sorry, the Kennedy Center in D.C. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the first ever. So he's like bringing. You know, bringing modern, I guess, uh, younger the younger crowd to the older style of music, and That's he's really done cool. like with Sarah Bareilles and Regina Spector and uh, a, a couple other pop artists that he's he's brought them in and done duets with them with a full orchestration behind them. That's so cool. There's yeah. an
1: album that he recorded. I don't know if it was on, on a college campus. But it's just Ben Folds live, and it's him just at the piano, and yeah. I listen to it all the time. It's just so fantastic to hear him on the piano. He rips it up, and oh, it's so fun.
2: And um, yeah, those songs are so great. Well, you are uh, you're you're pretty good yourself, so so don't <laughs> don't sell yourself short. Um, so we've got three closing questions here that I ask everybody on the podcast. Great. Very simply, number one, what motivates you?
1: Um, achievement to um to every day do something that I, I haven't done and, and to keep challenging myself to, to make stuff that matters. Um, and my family, to, to, to not just be able to provide for them, but to put things into the
2: world that make them proud and that affect them. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path?
1: I would say um, find the things that matter to you. Make sure to always educate yourself be looking for inspiration everywhere. Don't get caught up in anything that feels easy or lazy. Um, This wasn't a problem for me growing up as much, but you can always be checking a phone. You can always be looking at a screen, um, stare into space, let your mind wander. Um, Because there are so many times where I thought to myself, I'm tired. I don't want to get on the piano today. All right, I'll get on the piano. And then suddenly I wrote, I'm at the mountains. Hmm. So... Just see every day as an opportunity to have something in the world that
2: was not there. <laughs> Last question: If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you <laughs> want, what would you see? Um, and
1: this is one. This is one Broadway. I mean, one one musical. One in, anything. Interpret
2: it as you will. Oh, so like show, show, and show, show, show anything you want. Wow, I mm. made it super easy. <laughs>
1: Um, you know, I think if I could see one show the rest of my life, it would be Into the Woods. I just, um, I get lost in that story and that score and I always hear new things in it and what it says, what it just speaks to me in terms of its themes, its beauty. Um, yeah, I just, um, I just adore that show and it meant so much to me. I was, uh, I played the wolf and the prince in high school. <laughs> and uh, I tell uh, I tell James Lapine all the time, I say, this, this show really changed my life. I'm so grateful to you for writing it. And of course, to Stephen Sondheim.
2: Yeah. I think it's funny how Bonnie Milligan is always like, I want to be the baker's wife. You know, She's on Twitter all the time saying that. <laughs> she would be a great baker's wife. Yeah. She yeah. would be a great baker's wife. I yes, think sure. that I think it needs to happen. You heard it here not first, because <laughs> she's been saying it for a long time. We are just... <laughs> here for support yes <laughs> so you are on social media at Tom Music on Instagram yes. are you on, I can find you on Twitter are you on Twitter not Twitter yeah, not, not Twitter. Facebook no just, just just the Instagram just account. the Instas okay and then everybody listening of course get your tickets to see Superhero at Second Stage it's uh, 2st.com is their website and it's a limited run opens uh, opens tomorrow which uh, this is going to air or we'll air this episode next week so it will have just opened and it's running through March 31st at this point hopefully it will uh, continue beyond that I don't know if that's possible (laughs) you can get more of me at theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter facebook.com slash official theater podcast listen and subscribe and share and rate this podcast to get more of these amazing interviews and we are produced by Jillian Hockman and thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music and once again Tom Kitt thank you so much for taking the time this has been a wonderful conversation thank you my pleasure